Welcome to Film Grain, the official podcast of the Film Society of Northwestern Pennsylvania and the Greater Erie Film Office. This week, our guest is Steve Weiser, Executive Director of the Erie Philharmonic. And this week's Halloween horror recommendation from Mike is 2001's Session 9, which is available on Netflix. I'm John Lyons, filmmaker, teaching artist, and director of programming for the Film Society. I'm Erica Berlin, the executive director of the Film Society of Northwestern PA. I'm Mike Berlin, director of photography for Music Choice, and Erica Berlin's husband. All right, well, today we are interviewing Steve Weiser, and he is the executive director of the Erie Philharmonic. Welcome, Steve. Hey, guys, thanks a bunch. Our history with the Erie Philharmonic goes back quite a ways. Um, and in with fact, Steve. Goes... Right, exactly. Our history with Steve. <laughs> Steve. Forever. Even further. In fact, it goes back before you were even with the Erie Philharmonic. And so I wanted to bring that up because John and Steve worked together on a project even before that. So John, Steve, what was that about? Well, Steve, I think uh, probably reached out to us because uh, Steve yeah. is full of good ideas at all times. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Tell us about it. So, I, I mean, I, I remember we kind of in the, in the middle of like the, the growth of the Erie Chamber Orchestra and Matt Kramer had come across doing some of the Chaplin silent films with some of his other orchestras. And he brought up to us that he wanted to do City Lights. Um, and it was one of the first times that we could have came across the idea that a big project was presented and rather than ask any questions about it, we just decided like, all right, well, let's do it. Like, <laughs> how could we not try to do something as cool as this? So I went down to Butler and saw Matt do City Lights with uh, the Butler Orchestra down there. And it blew my mind how a, a black and white film entirely silent can almost bring you to tears at the end of it, that it can transcend such a, a long period of time and still be that powerful. So we decided to do it here. And then Matt and I were really flushing out the idea of how do we make the concert be more than just a concert? So we wanted to have sort of an educational aspect of it. And that was when we reached out uh, to John and the Film Society to get you guys involved for that kind of aspect. Yeah, I mean, uh, Chaplin City Lights is, it's one of my favorites right up there with like Limelight and The Dictator. I mean, we can, we can go on and on and on, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was a fabulous show. I remember, um, yes, yeah, sitting up there with you and you guys had popcorn and you had a, yeah. a great attendance, great audience and place was packed. It was probably one of the biggest crowds we had in what was the old cathedral, not old, but was Cathedral Prep Auditorium. And one one funny story that always sticks in my mind is we couldn't get the sound effects to officially work. So even though it's a silent film, there are sound effects that are baked in. So there is a national anthem that plays. There's a fight bell that goes in the boxing scene. And then there's a scene where he swallows the whistle and there's whistle sound effects. All of the sound effects we could fake except for the whistle because you had to do it while watching the screen and the musicians were in front of the screen. So I was backstage standing over Don Grise's shoulder as he's playing the film and we're watching it on this iMac as it's up on the screen. And I literally had to memorize every time that Chaplin coughed, which would be the whistle sound. So here you're blowing a whistle when he bends over to make the sound of a whistle. 800 people are laughing and you're trying to not laugh at your stupid self and then swallow the same whistle. 
it was it was absolutely hysterical it was really funny so you got a credit an additional credit that i should have exactly (laughs) that was great and then we continued that a little bit by working we went down to the venango museum and did a a little kind of outdoor festival. It was with the um, like the historical with the historical museum. center because mm-hmm. whether you know whether it was a real big deal or not, they say that uh, Chaplin came through Oil City on the train mm-hmm. on his way, you know, across the nice. country, and so there was a small exhibit in the historical center, and uh, we had a little. We had a little table out front and that was kind of neat too. So that was a really fun partnership with the Erie Chamber Orchestra. So that's how we kind of had a a fun little event together. And then you went to the Erie Philharmonic (laughs) and we had another really fun partnership. Um, And that was really great because you were celebrating the 100th anniversary. So that even was a bigger partnership because we worked on an actual video project together. And, and I think Mike that was, was involved in, in that as well. Yeah, John and, and Mike, you worked on that as well. So let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, that was a lot of fun. Um, that was with Albert Glinsky, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And it was we're, called, we're, uh, what was it? Sun Chaser? Sun, Sun Chasers. Sun, uh, one of the two. Yeah. <laughs> I remember trying, like, we kept on having the scheduling, going back, like, tag and stuff like that, going back and forth, and uh, then eventually got to go to his house and uh, film. That was pretty cool. Yeah, and, uh, for sure. And Mike had some some great footage, I remember, um, that we were able to use. Like, you had a, a GoPro or something that you used at sunset in the water. And, mm-hmm. yeah, it was cool. The concept was um, we wanted to connect, what, like, his, uh, his song to nature and, like, the sounds of Erie and the city. That was a really fun project. But it was just like we were really trying to just go off of because uh, he had sent us a MIDI track and, uh, you know, it was a little bit of a loose interpretation. For sure. And we hooked a GoPro up right there in front of Daniel. That was cool. Um, yeah. On stage, which was a great, great shot. <laughs> which I mean, that shot, what's funny is that footage has I, I'll see it used on other clips once in a while. <laughs> like uh, other people have, uh, you know, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not claiming for the rights or anything like that, but I, you know, I know that other people have used that, uh, have used that shot a few times. It was a great idea and see, cause you know, you guys always have such a huge packed audience at the Warner. So capturing that moment from that vantage point that no one gets to see except for the orchestra. It's just, uh, I don't know. It's, it excites me just thinking about it. <laughs> and plus it was a close up of Daniel's beautifully quaffed hair <laughs> flowing as he's being the maestro. It's uh, how can you go wrong? Well, that's a great uh, transition too, because the Erie Phil is, is actually looking at this immersive con- concert experience. And now we are experiencing the Erie Philharmonic in a whole different way. We went from being in the Warner theater and, and having this, this wonderful in-person experience to COVID times. We're not having these large theater experiences anymore. So Steve, tell us what's going on now with the Erie Philharmonic now that we can't be there in person. So we we wanted to find a way to really capture the imagination of everything the Philharmonic's been doing and to kind of keep our innovative spirit going and find an incredible way to reach an audience with a concert experience unlike anything you've really seen before. And we we sort of banted around a ton of ideas over the summer. Do we record the normal concerts we were going to do? Do we try to sell tickets online? 
how does this actually work? And after numerous brainstorm sessions, somebody simply mentioned, what if we just record the concerts and put them on TV for free? And it was the first idea that really stuck. And we're like, okay, let's let's kick that, kick the can down the road and see what happens a little bit. So one call out to Tom New at WQLN and we kind of posed the idea and the response was, well, of course. And that was it. That was as, as simple as it was to get the process started. So we're this whole season and we sort of have the first four concerts outlined, but the whole season will basically be free television televised concerts that'll be recorded with four high def cameras where the cameras will be all across the stage. So rather than your one static viewpoint from your seat in the middle of the back row, you'll have incredible views, pretty much like, like the Met Opera where you do these live HD broadcasts where there's one camera panning across the front of the stage and then there's a Daniel cam looking over his shoulder and then there's almost like a fishbowl camera look at the entire stage. So it's it's a way to experience a concert that is so different than what you would normally expect from just sitting in one static seat. I mean, that's a... It's a great pivot, guys, you know, like such a challenge because as we just talked about, you're used to these huge crowds and going from that to... Oh man, what are we going to do? Can you take us through some of the logistics of, you know, still you're putting a lot of people together, you know, your orchestra right. in a space, like walk us through how setting up one of these looks, um, you know, kind of from, from start to finish. I'm curious also how many cameras you guys are using, right. if you know. <laughs> I think I think it's at least four. I know one is one is a person definitely that is holding it. And then I know at least there are three or four stationary cameras. And then our ops director, Chris, sits with a score and calls the shots. So he's following along in the music. When you get to bar 16, he was like, all right, cue camera two. And then it goes over. So when you see the finalized product, it changes camera views on the beat. If there's a cello solo, it goes right there. So it's... It's pretty cool. The overall process started back in, I'd say, early June, where because we have a CBA with our musicians, we had to get our new plan of attack approved, and then we had to get our safety plan approved. So I, that was sort of one of the things that, that put us ahead of the curve is we started incredibly early coming up with this plan. We had to get a whole new ratification of an amendment that talked about different so it's going to look different this year. The musicians are going to be filmed on stage and what that's going to look like. How do we get them on TV? And then we had to approve a safety plan. So at this point, once we knew the 25 person cap was most likely not going to change, that was sort of where we left our numbers. So we do backwards math. We didn't want to record only a string quartet, but we knew we couldn't do a full orchestra because there's no good way to get wind players inside that doesn't look like you're playing in like a, a surgical setting with all these sort of like baffles and walls, there's no good way to do it. But you can get a 19 person string orchestra together perfectly safely. Uh, we chose Edinburgh University because it's a big enough stage to fit 19 string players. So everybody's wearing a mask. Everybody is playing from their own individual stand. Normally violin players and cello will share a stand. Everybody has their own stand. Everybody is spread out with a six feet circle around you all on stage. Everybody wears a mask. And then we had probably a six or seven page safety plan that had to get approved by our orchestra committee and then ratified by the musicians that goes through everything from when you show up, you'll be temperature checked before you leave to come to Erie, you have to send a text message to our ops director that confirms, I do not have a temperature, I have not come into contact, yada, 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 all that. Just so we're, we're really trying to protect the musicians. We don't want you to travel here, have a temperature, and then have wasted your trip. So it's a lot of those kind of nuts and bolts 
I'm sure as it progresses, we'll, we'll change a couple more things, but we've really had to be clear that we're going to give the musicians work. We're going to get them back together, but it's only going to work if we do it safely. That's incredible to go from things that you never thought that you were going right. to have to do because you went from having season ticket holders trying to figure out how to honor their tickets. And and I will say this as a season ticket holder where it was, okay, you're a season ticket holder. Let's plan on how to deal with the renovations and, <laughs> and put you in the arena. Right. Right. Okay. So let's, let's talk about how, let's talk about the renovations of the Warner. So right. it, it was, it went from let's figure out how to deal with the renovations to how to deal with COVID. Right. So it, yeah. it was one change after the other. So let's talk about that. No, even you, you rewind a year before that. And we spent probably seven months figuring out how to move 2000 people from the Warner to the arena. We had to assign everybody a new seat seat by seat because there's no good way to do it and the ultimate irony that there is a good chance that we'll never actually play a note in the arena that irony is not lost on all of us because there's there's a good it's it's less than 50 50 that we'll get to do the concerts in the spring depending on what happens so we were initially very scared like all right we have to figure this crazy big season we have to make the biggest season ever because we're gonna go in a hockey arena and you can't do it small you can't go to a hockey arena and play hide in no one's going to show up. You, you, you've got to go big or go home. So what, what's the worst that can happen? We're going to plan the season that relies on 3,000 people being able to get together. Oops. Because now <laughs> you, you've created this huge vacuum. You sold tickets for Star Wars and Mary Poppins and all these ginormous shows. Mm -hmm. And now you had to totally reinvent the thought process. You have to keep everybody engaged and let them know what's happening with the renovations. And you can't lose them. Because when you finally do come back to the Warner, you have to be able to knock it out of the park. So you have to find a way to keep your audience engaged. And as we were doing more and more sort of, of a, just back of the envelope math, we're like, there's no way we can try to sell a subscription model or sell tickets to these virtual concerts. Because we know we'll sell some tickets. We know it's going to work. But we know so many people can't access it in a meaningful way. Why not just take the decision out of their hands and make it free for everybody? And let's put it on TV. It's going to be on, on, on a live stream on computer. So you can totally watch it there. Or you can just sit in your living room with, with dinner and a TV tray and watch the film. So it, it definitely, it gives you perspective on what we thought was a big problem and totally changes it. Like I would give anything to have to go over the problem of just changing venues again. When you now have to look at the idea of reinventing everything that you do. We wrote a letter a week or two ago that we're, we're not the Philharmonic because of where we play. We're the Philharmonic because we play and that's it. That's the mantra we've adapted. I know the musicians are having a blast doing these recordings because it's it looks like a TV set on stage. When you see the kind of behind the scenes camera, there there's gear everywhere. There are cables. There are lots of guys with with cameras. Um, it it looks it looks really official. <laughs> so, what is the ideal outcome of doing a free TV series of this season? For me, I want it to be nobody has to make a decision this year about do I go buy a Philharmonic ticket or do I put gas in the car? Do I get groceries? Do I have to make any kind of decision this year? I want that to never have to be a choice anybody has to make this year. If you want to enjoy what the Eerie Phil can do when you're trapped at home going through all the craziness that is, it's not going to get any better for at least a, a little bit. Things are going to get a little tougher. We want to be that sort of source of 
relief and of just respite in this crazy world. And I want that to happen no matter what for everybody. Do you think the audience of the Erie Philharmonic is going to change? Do you think it's going to grow? Do you think it's going to shrink? I think as the eternal optimist, I'd like to think it's gonna force us to grow because we know we're reaching more people in different avenues than we've ever had before. We, we've never had the ability to put a simple li- link in an email and Facebook, be like, you wanna watch an Eerie Phil concert right now? Click here, bam, you're watching the Eerie Phil. We've never been able to do that before. The musicians have come along with us and have really compromised, we've compromised, all kind of working together. That it's now not just about those 2,000 people there in the Warner, it's about a musician that moved away and has grown up and is living in California can watch the Eerie Phil. That's somebody we never would have reached if we wouldn't be in a situation like this. Or parents of somebody who had a couple kids in the junior film and have moved away and can watch us. It's, it really puts us on a national scale for reachability that, again, it's funny how a, a crisis like this forces you to innovate. And if anything, I, I hope we can take this innovative drive and have it exist without a pandemic. How can we innovate this much just because it's Tuesday, not because the world's on fire? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a, a great pivot, Steve, really. And I, you know, optimist as well. Uh, I think you will reach a lot more people. Um, and I would be optimistic and hopeful for for the future when physical events return. How many um, other philharmonics are you aware of that have have made this pivot? Do you know? I've seen only a handful that have actually been able to make a full-blown TV series like this. Because we're in constant communication with other orchestras, our budget size, and then up and down. And I've seen one or two others that have created a TV series, but I don't think anything this repetitive on a PBS station. A lot of that has to do with WQLN and how partnership-oriented they've been in working with us to make it be something we can afford. If they had come back and said a price point that was too high, this would have been dead in the water. And the fact that they came back and worked with us and agreed to record it for us really, really made it. It was one of the legs of the, the table that makes this possible. Some of the other orchestras, and this is where they've been a little more innovative just because they have the funding, like the New York Phil, Detroit, any of the big the big guys have been doing virtual concerts way before this happened. So they can now flip on the virtual aspect of what they do. I saw a New York Phil concert, I think it was Mahler 7 or something, maybe two years ago, where the entire thing was a whole Facebook Live concert. So they've been doing this. They have the mechanisms. Detroit, same thing. Some of their big guys are really doing it. So we're kind of playing catch up to what some of the other groups have been doing. But I haven't seen anybody at least strictly copying the free TV concerts with no strings attached at least that we've seen, yeah. I've got a quick question. If I'm off base here, please just tell me. Uh, Steve, out of curiosity, did um, do you think that there was any sort of like any run through the Blues and Jazz Festival? Do you think that made it possible for WQN to sort of assume, like, sort of look at the landscape and be like, hey, we might be able to do this for you guys? I wouldn't be shocked if it helped. I'm curious on the timing. I I want to think they said yes to our broadcasting before Blues and Jazz Fest started, but I'd like to think that maybe they went into Blues and Jazz Fest starting to think, okay, now we know we're going to do this with the Erie Phil. Let's try some things out. I'm, I'd be curious on the timing. I know I asked them before we hit Blues and Jazz Fest, but Blues and Jazz Fest happened while we were kind of going through the planning process. And I, I know they've even learned more since the first, we've now recorded, we're basically recording three weekends in a row. The broadcasts are spread out over the whole 
winter, the fall and winter, but we've recorded three weekends in a row. And I know they've already kind of said they've learned a lot from what they thought was going to happen on the first time versus now the third weekend we've recorded. Refining the practice a little bit. Exactly. All right. So let's talk about this winter. It's, it's going to be upon us before we know it. Um, <laughs> and, you know, us being Erieites, we're very used to uh, cold weather and we go outside. We're not afraid of being outdoors. So you've got something interesting coming up this winter, a brass recording coming up for Christmas. What's going on with that? So we, we wanted to make the, the televised Christmas concert be something that stood apart from the other TV broadcasts that are coming out this fall. So half of the concert will be the same 19 person string orchestra that you'll see on the other broadcast recording typical holiday pops things that you're going to recognize sleigh rides some sort of a sing-along that I guess you can sing at home but the other half of the program will actually um, is going to be recorded um, in mid-October and it will feature a 14-person brass ensemble playing outdoors overlooking the lake in northeast so basically if you can picture a vineyard and a beautiful rolling hill area and a large sort of patio parking area, we're going to put a full humongous brass ensemble outside and record the half of the Christmas concert right there. So it's something we're finalizing the details now. It's going to be decorated for Christmas. You won't know that it's not Christmas, minus the fact that you can tell it's not snowing. But we have, we're going to have drone footage built in, so you can sort of have your low-flying drone just like flying across grapevines and then panning up, and there's a brass ensemble right there. It's, it's going to be really, really, really cool. So we've seen some of the test shots of that already, but that's, again, that's, we never would have been able to have done any portion of that pre-COVID. So that's going to be exciting. I love it. That sounds great. That sounds like tuba Christmas that they do in it's, Florida. Exactly. <laughs> this new world. <laughs> it's, it's pretty close. Again, when you get like a, a brass quintet, five players, that sounds great. But when you get 14 people together, that's, that's a sound like that'll, that'll be really cool. I love it. That's great. Well, Steve, thank you so much for sharing everything about the Philharmonic. I love it. It's, you know, it's just been fabulous partnering with with the Erie Phil over the past, I mean, really over the past, it feels like 10 years since the Film Society has been happening, even before you were with the Phil. Um, and we look forward to continuing our partnership with you into the future. Um as soon as we're able to show movies again, uh, we've, I have to say, you know, and John has been, been great. Our, we've dipped our toe in virtual programming as much as we can. Very, very kind of low key virtual programming. And we'll see how this winter goes. We've talked about doing some more virtual programming. We'll see. Uh, we'll let you know. Uh <laughs> yeah, they just, uh, they just announced Dune is pushed back to next October. So I'm, I'm a little nervous about when our big get together events <laughs> gonna, gonna happen. Breaks my heart. So many of like Tenet, uh, all the ones I really, really wanted to be able to see. But I have to say some of my best memories from this past year when things were stressful, getting ready for the Warner move and all the arena concerts was like coming on Wednesday nights to the film games that I did. I, I can't tell you how much that was just, I could disappear for a little bit and, and bring my, my poor wife, Lisa, to just to, who is not as much of a movie buff as I am. So like once upon a time in Hollywood, like, no, it's only violent for like six minutes. The rest of the movie is totally fine. <laughs> so I miss, miss Lisa too. We miss you and Lisa. We had a great time seeing you guys there. And you got Definitely. the couches. You got I know. The couches. <laughs> that's the best, that's the best seat in the house, right in the front on the couch. I agree. 
<laughs> well, speaking of movies, we do have the opportunity to watch them at home. We all have. And we're going to talk about our movie, Session 9, our <laughs> Hollywood horror movie. And this was Mike's choice this week. So, Mike, tell us about Session 9. Just in case you didn't see it, Session 9 takes place uh, at the Danvers Medical uh, Hospital, which is like, a, which is a real place. And I, and I hadn't watched this film in a while. And boy, it really holds up pretty well, actually. It is about a cleanup crew that is taking out all the fiber and all the asbestos. As they are going about their job, things start to unravel psychologically it, oh. it's an old it's an older movie at this point so sure let's spoil okay well we could get spoil into it this. spoil <laughs> spoil spoil all right so uh anyway uh, the film stars dave caruso peter mullen uh josh lucas who i forgot was in it as well and it's directed by uh brad anderson who is a uh at this point i think we'd call him a veteran filmmaker he, uh, for sure known for known for uh episodes of the wire in particular and uh fringe uh also has some uh john and i i don't know necessarily might have we might disagree on his career, but he's got some films that I really like uh, from The Machinist. Also, uh, Trans-Siberia, which I think is sort of an underrated uh, film with a solid Woody Harrelson uh, performance. Anyway, session nine. As perspective, I'll throw this out there as the novice to this panel. I watched this movie for the first time in my life in like 2003 when I had moved back to my parents' house after graduating with my master's in percussion performance from Temple. I moved home and started teaching in my parents' basement. No joke. And that was right when Netflix like came out like for real and you could get this really cool envelope in the mail and Session 9 was one of the first ones I ever got in the mail. So I watched it literally, oh, how, I don't even know how long ago that was. So it was only like six years ago. No, like 2002, 2003. And I just watched it again to catch up. And it, I agree, it holds up. It's creepy. Creepy. Creepy is a good word for oh. it. Yeah. I, I mean, when I first saw it, like, I I gave it a nine back back in the day. Like, I really, really loved it. Mike, you'd have to, um, I know you, you will remember this better than I, but this was shot on HD cam. Yeah. I, it was the HVX or is it the Z1U? It's one of those two because I think it's one of the first uh, films that was shot with the uh, with the true 24P. Yes. Which, yeah. So yeah. you know, which adds a a grit and a character to the the footage for sure. I think it just adds to the creepiness that Steve was was getting at. I just remember when when I saw it. You know, it was around the time of like Fight Club and some other films that were like really influential on me aesthetically and um i i really appreciate this this film for that i was really captured by it and who who hasn't wanted to film in a uh in an old state hospital or go to an old state hospital <laughs> I did a little bit of reading up on behind the scenes productions. And what's interesting is what the film is projecting and the first five, 10 minutes of it, all of that's really ha was really happening. And they were really actually doing this work at uh, on the hospital at the time before they demolished it, which is like five, six years later. And uh, they, yeah, so they had to go through all of this. And I, I don't know, I couldn't find where Anderson got uh, sort of the influence for this plot, but he clearly, I think he might be a native of the area. He probably got it sort of anecdotally along the ways if anybody found, uh, finds a Q&A of him talking about this movie. So I, while we were watching, I looked up the website of the hospital. Oh yeah. And and there were interior photos that were 
actual so they when they did the tour in the beginning they were literally photos in the hospital the same photos that were on the website like the night people and i remember what you know seeing that in the movie being like that's creepy the picture of the um like kind of people they looked like they were dead people and then it said night people above it and that was a picture on the website and the picture of like the um clock on the wall it was all pictures from the site and it was like that's real and they really did film there and it just was so bothersome and the picture and they and the guy describing how the the building looked like a bat it really did look like a bat when they did the overhead footage it was it was shaped like a bat and how weird that was you know when they built a building that was shaped like a bat it's like what was the point of all of that you know so I, I was I was creeped out it sounds like I was the only person that was watching it for the first time um and you know I I don't really I don't like being scared. Um, so I'm not a big <laughs> horror movie fan. So when these kinds of things come up, I just kind of half, I try to like pay attention, but I also like having distractions so that I don't have to 100% watch. And I actually wasn't scared too much. I was creeped out by the the location, but I was distracted by the the guy who was kind of obsessed with going down and listening to like the tapes. Michael, yeah. Michael, I was like, why is he listening to the tapes? Like, I, I kept asking Mike, like, why is he going down there? He, well, you know, that's it. And he's to, curious. He just oh, wants to listen to the tapes. It's the whole side plot of Mary. But we were, and Eric and I were talking about this, you know, earlier. Is Do you think that guy, that side plot was just kind of like a movie MacGuffin? And that it's just like, it really doesn't necessarily have a ton to do with the plot. Because that is like, that's the, that would be the classic trope of a horror movie where it's like, somebody's learning about this character. And, so, and at the end of the day, that's, that side plot doesn't actually have anything to do. It didn't it. have anything to do with anything. It yeah. was just supposed to freak you out. What like, I was what I was expecting is almost like when when the the power gets shut off and the power comes back on and the tape reel turns back on again and you finally hear the final character's voice. I was almost expecting, and I just have I must have rem remembered it wrong. I was expecting it to be the voice of like the main asbestos remover. I forget the character's name, but all of a sudden you hear Gordon. Like, the Gordon. other person, Gordon, Gordon. and. And all of a sudden, it's Gordon's voice as like as the character. So you're right; it's it doesn't have, I think, a specific connection, at least as much as it could have. Yeah, I don't. I thought, is that Gordon? And Mike just goes, "It's a MacGuffin. <laughs> it has nothing to do with it." <laughs> oh, okay. I just saw in the uh, IMDb trivia that um, Brad Anderson drove by this location every day. So oh, he wow. obviously had the same feeling of, man, I'd love to film something in there. Right. <laughs> um, and I guess that uh, some of Silent Hill and some other um, things that came after were heavily influenced by by this film. I believe Silent Hill 3, to be exact. Close to where I grew up outside of uh, Reading, the Philly area on the eastern side of the state, there's a very similar uh, mental hospital like that that had been shut down. I remember driving, having my dad drive me by it somewhere and telling the exact same story. Like, and then one day they just closed down and opened the doors. And it was it was weird. So you see a film where it's it, it didn't just happen there. Well, could you imagine? I mean, not to like, take it too far off the, but just the size of the facility and the number of people were there 
like what it must have cost to keep all of that going it's it's wild it's just absolutely wild kind of seems like a massive waste of money i mean they had one in warren too right or did they still have one in warren i uh no i'm sure it's shut down yeah i think it's shut down but they would do like uh tour like haunted halloween tours and stuff there right like Mm. i always wanted i don't know there's some fascination with no thank you (laughs) (laughs) no thank you I, I went on like a, a, a kick of them where it's like there there's a whole like genre of like mental hospital horror films where there's some that are like found footage where you just kind of you can go down the rabbit hole and after like six or seven you're like I just need to sleep at night. I can't what are what are some highlights that you you would also recommend, oh. Steve? That's in this subgenre. What's the what the Gore Verbinski one that he did a couple Shutter, of years. Shutter Island. That's oh, one that that's I remember. Oh, wow. Yeah, Shutter yeah, Island. That's, that's a good that's one. That's one of my favorites. Yep. I can watch that over and over again. Yeah, I just rewatched that this year, not that long ago. Mm-hmm. I need to the, see yeah, that the again. The Gore Verbinski one. What was what was that one? Because that was Scorsese was uh, Shutter Island. Yeah, with Shutter Island. Yeah. I will. I beat this up. I'm looking it up. Oh, thank you. There, there were like three in a row that were like sequels that I had seen where they kept going back to like film some of a show in the mental hospital. But I can't remember. Yeah, like I'm I'm a apologist for the Silent Hill movie, the first Silent Hill movie. I love like the texture and the, I, I love that movie a lot. It's it's creepy. The nurses and <laughs> I get and I think we talked about it briefly last week. I mean, it's sort of interesting within um, the horror genre itself, how there are these subgenres. And I definitely think the mental hospital institution one is certainly maybe not the most frightening of them in, uh, or frightening of that, you know, of the horror genres, but it's, it, uh, yeah, there's some, uh, there's some solid uh, submissions to the, to all those works. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you've got uh, Ratchet, which is, you know, the new Netflix series, right? One oh. from the Cuckoo's Nest. From the Cuckoo's Nest, yeah. yeah. you got Silence of the Lambs, and we were talking about Hannibal not too long ago. Zodiac, The Green Mile. Apparently, there's another there's another one by Brad Anderson called Fractured. Is it a similar setting? You mean it's a hor- it's a according to Ranker, it's another um, horror movies about hospitals and mental asylums. Oh, okay. it's another one by Brad Anderson. I don't think I've seen that one. Yeah, I know I haven't either. Twelve Monkeys, Girl Interrupted. Oh yeah, Girl Interrupted. Well, that's a great one. That's a great one. Yeah. Well, it was a great revisit, Mike, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you, Mike. Thank. I think that was a good. That was a very good one. I have. I have was, the recommendation I, for next week. Oh, Steve, I, it, go ahead. it was. It was topical because I had just finished Westworld, and I had um, not seen. I had not seen Gordon in anything in my entire life, <laughs> other than Westworld. I'm like, who, who's this? It. Who's the Scottish guy that I've never heard before? And then when, when I went back to revisit Session Nine, your mind's just blown. You're like, wow. Of all the uh, things, Ozarks too. He's uh, in particularly season one of Ozarks. He's in that, yeah. and of course, who could forget his five minutes on on screen in Braveheart? <laughs> oh. He's got the line, "I'm not dying for these bastards, son. I'm going home." <laughs> I think that's he's Robert Bruce's dad, oh, or some, he's in that. Yeah, no, he plays just one of the clansmen, and he just like oh. when before Mel Gibson gives the. Uh, <laughs> You know, the famous speech. He's like, I'm not dying afraid of these bastards. 
it's worth watching Braveheart for. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> Session Let's... nine. Thank you, Mike. And that's on Netflix. Netflix. On Netflix. If you're looking for a not too scary horror movie, that's the one to go with. Well, next week's selection is mine. We'll see. I don't know if anybody has seen this. Um, I I haven't seen it, but I was fascinated by the description. In fact, Mike had suggested it to me. I know he hasn't seen it either, but it's called The Skull. It's from 1965. The description, a collector comes into possession of the skull of the Marquis de Sade and learns it is possessed by an evil spirit. Ooh. It is a British horror film directed by Freddie Francis, who is an Oscar winning director for cinematography of Sons and Lovers from 1960 and Glory from 1989. He was also nominated for BAFTA Cinematography Awards for The Straight Story, The French Lieutenant's Woman, and Cape Fear. So this guy's done a lot of different movies. It's only an hour and 20 minutes, and it's available on Hulu and Amazon Prime. So a very, very different kind of movie. Um, I think we'll all enjoy it. Don't forget to... And this is not to be confused with uh, the Joshua Jackson, Paul Walker, uh, Rob Cohen directed Skulls classic from. That's that's, that's correct, John. It is not the Skulls. It's called (laughs) The Skull 1965. It's on Hulu and Amazon Prime. It's got a good cast. Christopher Lee is definitely in it. He plays Sir Matthew Phillips. Okay. Okay. Christopher Lee (laughs) is in it. But he is not the star. It has a great director. So please enjoy. We'll discuss it next week. That means that John is our final recommender. So you'll get his recommendation next week. Oh. Oh. Well, this has been a fun one. Steve, thank Mm -hmm. you so much for sticking around and talking uh, session nine with us. Oh, thank you, guys. It was a that was a a blast from the past for sure. (laughs) So which shows do we have coming up? for our listeners at the fill. So looking ahead, you have uh, TV concerts on October 29th that are rebroadcast on November 1st. You have a program on November 17th that comes out then on the 20th and then December 17th. So they come out on a Thursday and then that following Sunday. So pretty much the end of October, the end of November and the middle of December. Fantastic. I can't wait. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, thanks, Steve. That's been our episode. Thank you, Steve Weiser of the Erie Philharmonic. You can find more information about their TV series on eriephil.org. Make sure you follow the Film Society of Northwestern Pennsylvania and the Greater Erie Film Office on social media. You can find all the tags and links in the show notes for this episode. Until next time, this was Film Grain. <laughs>